I'm Sarah Elizabeth Smith, and this is the Theosophia Podcast, a platform for women's voices and theology. If you love Theosophia and appreciate our content, consider donating on our Patreon page. Just visit patreon.com and search for Theosophia. This week, I had the honor and privilege to interview one of my sheroes, the Reverend Dr. Dean Emily Towns. Emily is currently the Dean of Vanderbilt Divinity School and the E. Rhodes and Leona B. Carpenter Professor of Womanist Ethics and Society. This week we chat about Emily's life and discernment of her vocations of ministry, teaching, and leadership in academia. She's a pioneer, a visionary, and dare I say, a prophet. Please welcome distinguished scholar and leader in theological education, Emily Towns. It was so good to see you last weekend. That was a nice surprise. I should have known. (laughs) (laughs) You know, some things just don't process until I see them. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta support my girl, Kelsey. She, I didn't realize you were gonna give her all the awards. Well, I, I knew about um, the university medal because yeah, tell us well ahead of time. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't know about some of the other stuff. <laughs> yeah, that was cool. Well, how about we start off talking about your religious and spiritual background? Okay. I know you're you're Baptist. You're ordained in the Baptist Church, right? Did you grow up American Baptist? American uh-huh. Baptist. Was that what your family was? No, my family. Um, my my nuclear family is United Methodists. Mm. My grandmother was African Methodist Episcopal Zion mm. on my mother's side. I don't know about my father's side at all because um, his parents died when he was a, a little boy. Mm-hmm. So we got uh, mostly Methodist roots um, in the generations I know. Mm-hmm. What drew you to the Baptist church eventually? Um, a couple of things. I um, didn't like United Methodist polity. I didn't like the fact that um, um, when I grew up, they were moving ministers every four years, regardless. And um, it seemed like just as somebody was settling in, they were being moved. Right. And I just didn't see how that was healthy for the church. Mm. And I felt that even as a little kid. Um, And so that and the fact that I became aware that I really didn't believe in infant baptism. Mm. That was going to make it difficult to be an ordained minister. (laughs) Those two things alone. Um, and and I had uh, most growing my growing up years most of my friends were Baptists and I always envied the fact that they got to read the the actual Bible and what we had in Sunday school were workbooks about the Bible mm. and I yeah I kept asking can't we just read the book can't we <laughs> no you have the workbooks and I just thought man we're getting chipped. 
<laughs> so, so uh, when I was doing my field ed, I asked um, to be placed, um, to not to be placed in a, a Methodist church because I, I knew that tradition. I'd grown up with it. My father was a very active lay person, so I knew tons and tons about the Methodist church. I wanted to see what other people did, and I really didn't care um, what denomination. I just wanted to experience another way of folks celebrating the gospel. Right. And so I ended up at a uh, at Hyde Park Union Church that was a, a church union, um, American Baptist and United Church of Christ. And the pastor of the church, the senior pastor of the church at that time, David Bartlett, was American Baptist. And although it was my first time in a predominantly white church, I felt like I was coming home. Mm. Um, I just like, yeah, this is what I've been looking for. Right. That's so similar to my experience in the Episcopal church, you know, Mm. Dr. Armour selected me for the Arcus grant and she said, Hey, have you ever thought about the Episcopal church? You know, given I grew up in the Methodist church like you, mm-hmm. and then I, I fell in love with Catholicism, but didn't feel like I could be a part of it because I was a woman. And then, you know, that's where she was like, why don't you go do your field at, uh, St. Anne's. And then that's the exact feeling I felt was like, I was home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was mm-hmm. like, this is, this is it. People were calling the Holy Spirit she during the Nicene Creed. And I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, Lord, this is, this is it. <laughs> um, so you grew up in Durham, North Carolina. Is that mm-hmm. right? That's right. Yeah. And before I want to go, to, I wanted to ask one more question though about, um, I have so many questions about Baptists. Okay. Cause my mom, my, my whole mom's side of family's Baptist, but uh-huh. so what drew you to that branch of the Baptist though? Cause you know, there's a lot, obviously there's lots of different types of, Baptists, and especially in Oklahoma, I'm, I'm meeting a lot of folk that have grown up in some pretty interesting Baptist churches and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Southern Baptists get all the publicity and I don't, people often get a really skewed view of what Baptists are all about, I think because of the Southern Baptists, but mm-hmm. I'm always telling people there's tons of different types of Baptists. I know mm-hmm. so many Baptists, they'll ordain women, some are or- ordain LGBT folks. So mm-hmm. what, what's different about the American Baptist church? Well, historically, and I didn't know this getting into it, but historically it has been, it is the church of the split in um, slavery and civil war between Baptists in the North and Baptists in the South. Um, and the American Baptist um, part decided not to use Northern Baptist, so it did for a bit, um, but finally settled on American Baptist. And it has historically been the more liberal of the two um, oh. of the major Baptist. Um, denominations. Mm -hmm. And um, certainly in the uh, late 70s and early 80s, when I was 
transitioning from United Methodist to American Baptist, they were very, um, the, 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 the whole stance around a wide variety of social issues was much more me um, and much more how I understood the gospel working in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that has changed some. Um, but in Chicago, it was easier to find an American Baptist church than a Southern Baptist church. Right, right. That was right. one thing. Um, but also the um, understanding of um, the social gospel was much more what I was raised with as a United Methodist because I was in a small mission church in Durham and the pastor who had the most um, impact on me, Reverend Doug Moore, was somebody who was very involved with the uh, sit-ins and desegregation movement of the 60s um, and also fiercely, fiercely committed to developing a, a deep spirituality in the church. So that's, that's how I grew up. I didn't know you could separate the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that, that American Baptists were coming close to that. Mm-hmm. Um, with the um, change in the Southern Baptist denomination going more conservative, the more liberal Southern Baptists, many of them, um, have transferred over to the American Baptists, but they're more conservative than the sort of archetypical American Baptists. So there's a real sort of roiling that's going on in American Baptist circles now. <laughs> um, and so I, um, you know, I do what I do. <laughs> I try to be who I am. Yeah. Um, and, um, um, recognize that uh, there are still many American Baptist churches out there that are still holding on to that historic commitment of um, soul freedom. And, um, you know, you're, the, the, the journey you were on is with God, not with the church. Mm. Um, so, yeah, uh, it still gives me, it still allows for that strong um, sense of my relationship with God being important and significant. Mm-hmm. And that, that hasn't gone away. Yeah. So that's why American Baptist. Yeah. Were there any women in leadership growing up for you in the church that made you huh. feel Not, like you could be called to ordination? No. No, not really. Um, you know, it was a typical situation where the women were kind of running the church. Right. Everywhere, but in the pulpit. Right. Yep. Um, but it never dawned on me that women couldn't be in the pulpit. Well, that's cool. Yeah. I, I don't know how I um, avoided um, making that next logical step. Right. It could be that because um, in the, the stuff we did as youth, um, it was not unusual for one of the girls, if we had youth church Sunday and 
took over the whole service. It wouldn't be unusual to have one of the girls preach the sermon. Uh-huh. I mean, it was no big deal. It just happened because that's who most of the youth group was. Right. So, so um, I, you know, I've, I've managed to dodge some interesting um, um, like discriminations yeah. um, early on so that later on when I do run into them, it's sort of like, what is wrong with you people? <laughs> This is this is not what God wants us fighting about. Right. So, right. so it's been it's been helpful that way. How did you experience your call? Hmm. Um, which one? Ooh, <laughs> uh, there's a there's one, two, three. All uh, to different things. Um, um, my call to ordain ministry, I sort of backed into. Um, when I was in my field ed assignment um, during my years at the Div School at Chicago, I um, was um, the minister for social concerns at Hyde Park Union Church. And part of that job had the Golden Diners program with it, which meant I got to spend my lunch, my lunchtime five days a week with seniors, which I absolutely adored. I, yeah. I like hanging out with older people. Yeah. Uh, uh, and um, the um, assistant minister of our church was fresh out of seminary at um, Colgate Rochester Divinity School. And um, within the first year, year and a half, two years, somewhere in there, um, Steve was ordained. And I had never seen an individual ordination service. Uh I mean, it was really like, wow, look at that. Because Methodist, you know, it's a group thing. Um, And... He was, a much, he, you know, he was a young man. The older people just, especially the little old ladies, loved to see him coming. And um, um, so he invited all the Golden Diners to his ordination, and, and several of them came. And uh, the next week, I was talking with um, one of the older women at the program, she, former librarian, always dangerous people. <laughs> and... <laughs> She said, so when are we going to get to go to your ordination? And I said, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to get ordained. I have not been called to ministry. And she just looked at me and she said, what do you think you've been doing with us this oh, last week? She called you out. <laughs> she did. She called me straight out. <laughs> and I, I sort of went, uh, she said, well, if this isn't ministry, what you're doing, I don't know what is. <laughs> so... I went, uh, huh? So I, I left the I left the the social hall and went upstairs and found David at his desk and told him the conversation. And uh, he started laughing. He said, "We've been wondering when you were going to figure this out." Oh my! <laughs> so like, oh, so I you know I had to think about it a lot more before. Yeah. 
that. So that was really a sort of back into it. It wasn't realizing right. what I was doing. Right. Was what I was doing. Right. Um, the, um, the call to teach yeah. was um, a different thing altogether. Um, I uh, had gotten my doctor of ministry at, at Chicago because at that time they didn't do an MDiv. Okay. The doctor of ministry was their first professional degree. Right. And um, I uh, was still in the Chicago area. I had been working for uh, the Seminary Co-op Bookstore which is one of the world's best, if not the best, academic bookstore. Um, and I had been um, sent out to Northern Baptist Seminary to run a branch out there as an experiment. Well, the, um, Northern, the, the Northern Baptist Seminary students were not into books like people in Hyde Park. Right. Uh, so I was uh, getting fairly miserable. And um, oh, who was it? Henry Young, Dr. Henry Young, who was a professor of theology at um, Garrett Evangelical Seminary in Evanston, just up the road, um, got in touch with me and said, um, we understand that you have a doctor of ministry uh, degree. I said, yes. And, he said, well, we've got a group of black women students here at Garrett for the first time, and they have been on us about getting a black woman teacher. Oh. And um, you have the requisite credentials for an adjunct teacher. Would you be interested? And I said, well, sure. Yeah. Well, why not? Yeah. So I went up and, and met with with Henry and uh, Dr. Rosemary Keller was there too. And the three of us figured out a course I could teach. It was, we titled it uh, The Black Church and Feminism. Nice. And um, was all set to go, was driving up Sheridan Road in Chicago. When it dawned on me, I really didn't know anything about teaching. <laughs> you, you know, both my parents are college professors. Right. Um, I would sit outside my mother's classroom. Um, when I came uh, up from uh, my grade school and listened to her teach, really lecture. But that was it. That was really all I had. Yeah. And I thought, well, I can't turn around. So I just started praying um, and got to Garrett and walked into the classroom and there were about 25 students there, mostly black women, but also a few black men, um, a few white women. Um, and everybody was excited because almost everybody in that classroom had never had a black woman teacher, mm. including me on the, you know, the, the um, <laughs> collegiate 
or in my D, um, UC dip school years. They just wow. weren't getting right. Um, so I, oh man, I, God, <laughs> you gotta help me on this one. <laughs> and so I sat down, arranged my stuff, looked up at everybody, and said, "Let us pray." Yeah, which is what I do um, in almost every class session. Yeah. Um, and I'm really clear, it's not so much for the class as it is for me. Right. <laughs> right. Um, class gets to listen in. <laughs> but, um, and so finished the prayer, looked up at everybody, opened my mouth, started talking, and within seconds I knew this was what I was supposed to do. Uh, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Right. And I immediately got sad because that meant I would have to go back to school and get a fee. <laughs> and I had just finished going from kindergarten to D-men nonstop. Right. And I was tired. Yeah. Um, but it was clear. And I um, tested it out. And um, I, I then became someone that the, the, the different seminaries in the Chicago area would invite in as an adjunct teacher. Uh-huh. Um, and so I had this first class was the, the ideal class you could ever possibly want. People did the work, people came prepared. Um, you know, it was great. But I also knew that real teaching happens when people don't do the work, don't come prepared. You know, and so I wanted a little more experience. So I, I got it. And realized, no, this really is what I want to do, but I still want to sit out a little while longer. Yeah. And um, about that time, I uh, met Katie Cannon for the first time. Oh. And uh, Katie was like this holy grail right. figure. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, it's Katie Cannon. Right. So, I, yeah, I don't fangirl often, but I fangirl. <laughs> All I did was just stand there grinning, um, afraid been, to say anything stupid. Yeah. I've been hounding Courtney Bryant to get me in touch with her. Yeah, she's easy to get in touch with. Yeah, apparently, I've, apparently she's a wonderful, wonderful teacher. So. She is. She mm -hmm. is one of the best teachers I know. And just a great mentor to her students as well. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. She is. So uh, Katie was the uh, keynote speaker for a, a racial ethnic women in ministry consultation sponsored by the National Council of Churches. And I was on the planning team for this. And she was, and I, and I was her driver. But I said nothing the whole time I was driving her around. She was sitting outside her cabin and people were gathered around and she was interviewing them and um, got to me and said, you know, you're my driver. You haven't said a word. What, what, are, you, what are you hoping to do? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm going to wait five years and then I'm going to go back to school because I want to I wanna teach and get my PhD. And she, she gave me what I call the Katie Cannon look. Oh, no. Which is a look you don't want to get from Katie. <laughs> it's a cross between 
that's a terrible thing that your head just fell off your shoulders. Right. <laughs> Between that and you poor thing. Um, and so she gave me a look and I, uh, and then she said, do you realize that as we sit here in 1984, there are only five black women in the world who have earned PhDs no. in religion. Wow. And she waited until she could see I had counted them all up because I assumed that the five people I knew were just five of many. Right. <laughs> and when it became clear, no, no, yeah, oh, I know them all. Um, then she just looked at me and said, do you really think we can afford for you to wait? Uh, so within a month, I took the GRE, and in the fall, I was in school. It seems to so, be a, th a theme of older <laughs> black women calling you out. That there is one. That, that, <laughs> that it is. The third call was not <laughs> an older black woman. <laughs> I did break my pattern, but I did back into it because I was not going to be an administrator. Both my parents were college professors. Both right. my parents were administrators at the end of their career. And I, by God, was not going to do what my parents did. So I'd already broken the I don't want to teach thing. Yeah. But I knew I had control over the administrators. So. Uh-huh. Well, that didn't quite work out, did it? No. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, actually, um, um, I had I was at at Yale. I had become a um, administrator there reluctantly, um, but the dean of of the school at the time, Harry Attridge, just you know, he basically said, "You're the one I want to do this," and he waited me out. <laughs> because um, he waited me out. <laughs> and um, um, it became clear somewhere in that five years that he was grooming me to be a dean and everybody saw it. Uh, I eventually saw it. But I also had a really strong sense and conviction that Yale was not about to appoint an out black lesbian as dean of their divinity school. Right. And I was right. Um, and, um, but I had gone through the search process. I was one of the final two. Um, and in the search process, it became clear to me this was not gonna, this was not gonna happen. Uh -huh. um, but also, I, two other things. One, I can think like a dean, dean. <laughs> and two, I really like being an academic dean. Right. So uh, I was happy to go back to being an academic dean. And when the president went with the other person, I was, we both agreed that I would stay on as um, academic dean. I'd take my year sabbatical. Um, because I was exhausted and um, come back and pick up where I left off. Right. Well, as that was happening, um, Jim Hudna Boimler was retired, had announced his retirement. <laughs> yeah. And so 
Ellen Armour um, was having dinner with her partner and Laurel and me here in Nashville uh, when Laurel and I were here for a conference. Uh-huh. And um, Ellen, in her Ellen way, said, you know, our president, our dean, I mean, our dean is, <laughs> is uh, retiring. And um, I know you went through the dean search at, at, at Yale. And I said, yep, I did. And nope, I did. <laughs> <laughs> and she knew that. And she said, well, would you, would you consider putting your name in here? And I actually literally cussed her out. <laughs> Sweet little Ellen. <laughs> Sweet little Ellen. I surprised everybody, including myself, with the amount of heat and potty mouth. Oh, no. I had in saying no. <laughs> but Ellen wouldn't let it go. Good. Yeah, she just kept at it and kept yeah. at it and worked through other channels and yeah. got Laurel to work on me. And, uh-huh. you know, the rest is history. Uh, um, so so that call really was a sort of, <laughs> a nope, not doing it. <laughs> um, but that doesn't seem to be what has happened. <laughs> That's, I'm so glad to know that story. Oh, yeah. Since this is going to be a podcast, I'm not going to tell you what I said. No, that's all right. I can could imagine. Oh, that makes it even sweeter, though. I remember sitting around with the, all of y'all at dinner. When was that? For some sort of lecture that happened. We all had dinner together that one night, and mm-hmm. it was my last year there. Mm-hmm. And I just remember, this is pretty awesome. I feel so blessed. And I, I want you to know, it was between Vanderbilt and Yale for me right before maybe when I applied, you were still at Yale. Mm-hmm. And then when I got my acceptance letter, I came to visit Vanderbilt and Yale had actually given me more money. And I, but when I heard you were going to be the new Dean, I said, all right, can somebody help me with this money? And I'm going to come to Vanderbilt. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And we worked it out and so no I'm glad to hear that yeah, yeah I don't think you'd have been happy at Yale and it's not because I don't like Yale yeah that the the great thing about um the moves I've made is that I've never left a place because I was unhappy uh-huh. I've left because it was a call yeah and um I felt Maybe I'd done all I could do where I was. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, to wrap up this part of it, I wanted to know two things. One, you know, I I call this podcast Theosophia for a reason. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think most people, most lay people don't know about Sophia. Mm -hmm. And that drives me crazy. And so I wanted your take on Sophia and what she mm. meant to you and mm. how you, how you interact and understand, mm-hmm. understand her. You know, for me, I lean more on what her name means, which is wisdom. Yeah. And 
I make a distinction between knowledge and knowing and wisdom. And wisdom is something that does a two-step with um, your intuition, good common sense, and paying attention and being alert in the world around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that is, is really hard for us to pull off as, yeah. as, as human beings. We might get one, maybe two, but all three consistently is, it's a discipline that most of us don't choose to engage in. I find it the kind of discipline that brings me to my best self as um, a Christian woman, a womanist, um, a black lesbian, person just hanging out in the neighborhood, I mean, all of who I am, right. that best self gets called out. If I can um, bring those three things together in a consistent basis and not try to not try so much to teach other people to be it, but to live it as a model. Mm-hmm. Um, and let people figure out for themselves, is this for them? Um, so that, that sense of wisdom, um, I think one of the reasons why I like hanging out with seniors so much, um, the seniors who have a lot of good sense, <laughs> let, me, let, <laughs> let me, let me qualify that, <laughs> is that they've just got this storehouse of wisdom. Yeah. Um, that. I am. I'm. I'm uh, I, I really crave to have that in my life. Yeah. Um. And to be able to extend that to others as a way of thinking about how we should live. Yeah. Um. So Sophia, Sophia, it's, it's, it's a, it's right up there with faith with me. Thanks again, Dean Towns, for sharing your story and context with us. To me, your voice is like a healing balm to the world. Your life and story give me so much hope for women. Next week, Emily and I discuss the question of should our faith be political? Until then... You can find us at theosophiapodcast.com and all of the social media outlets. Have a great week, y'all. Peace.